So, Dr. Jimmy Scroggins, would you join me on the platform, please? Jimmy serves as the uh, lead pastor of Family Church in uh, South Florida. And uh, he and I have been friends for, for about two decades now. We've known one another and been able to observe one another's ministry and families and all the rest. And, uh, and for the past 15 years, he's done an incredible job leading Family Church there, again, in South Florida, uh, the Mother Church, the Hub Church there in the West Palm Beach area. So, Jimmy, welcome to Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to this conversation. Welcome to a room full of people talking about other things. <laughs> Yeah, Jason, it's all, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really fun to see how God's used you and Karen and your family and just the force of your leadership here at Midwestern Seminary and then really around the world as you've extended the influence of this seminary and reignited, you know, I think the, the purpose of our seminary education. And I love your theme that's been there from the beginning for you for the church and even the message that you just shared earlier. You, you really make it practical and you speak to guys who are doing real church work. So thank you for doing that. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. It's such a privilege to get to, to steward, to serve this institution in Kansas City, founded in 1957. And uh, we've had our ups and downs. We've had our theological meanderings over the decades, but God has been really kind the past 10 or so years here to bless with enrollment and growth and resources. And so it's a very precious stewardship we have. Now, you mentioned my family. I want to mention your family. So you have eight children. So give us now the names and the ages of your eight kids. All right, so I have uh, my oldest son's James. Uh, he's married to uh, Riley. They have two sons, and James is an infantry officer with the Third Infantry Division, and he's about to be deployed to Europe. And so I'm very grateful for his service, and I'm really proud of them. And they love the Lord and doing great. Daniel and his wife Mary Madison, and they have one daughter, and then one that's about to be born. And he is a youth pastor at the First Baptist Church of Naples, Florida. And so we like having them not too far away from us. I've got two boys that play football at Southwest Baptist University here in Missouri. I've got another son that plays football at the United States Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York. I've got a daughter that's a freshman at Palm Beach Atlantic University where we live. And then I've got a 10th grade daughter and an 8th grade son. Well, Jimmy, to know you over the years uh, has been just such a joy to see your love for your kids and uh, a greater joy to see their love for you. And uh, no family's perfect. My family's not perfect. Your family's not perfect. But I love to see the joy there and the sense of togetherness. So let's talk about that a little bit here. We have a lot of dads in the room and moms in the room and those who have gospel aspirations for their kids and uh, aspirations their kids would, would love the local church as well. So, again, tell us some of the things you've learned along the way. Boy, you know, when you talk about parenting, it's kind of like talking about pastoring. You never actually arrive and you're always learning. And just like a church is fragile, no matter how strong it is, a family is fragile in a way too, because there are always forces that are being exerted on your family that are beyond your control and that you don't see coming. And you, everyone has a sin nature. Everyone in the family, starting with me, always have this sin nature that we're having to constantly battle. And so uh, you're right when you say there's there's no perfect family. But I will say this. Uh, my wife, Kristen, um, loves the Lord and loves the ministry. And so we went into this eyes wide open long time ago. Uh, wanting to to be involved in church ministry. And God's let us do it for a long time. And then we've been able to raise our kids in an environment where our church 
has been a blessing to our marriage. Our church has been a blessing to our children. And so our children and my wife love our church. They are grateful to our church. So even little things, like if we go out to eat as a family and we go to Outback or some somewhere and we're eating and we'll say, now, I always say, now listen, um, the reason that we can do this is because God's people have funded our family. They pay our salary so that we can do this together. We need to remember that. So just things like that. And it makes my kids grateful. The other thing is, um, I think just when you're the senior pastor, if you don't have a good youth ministry or a good children's ministry, that's your fault. Fix it. Right. You know, if you've been there 15 years, you can't keep blaming George Bush. I mean, you got to just keep going. You got to like, it's on you now. And so at some point, you have to be building the kind of church that you want your family to grow up in. And uh, our church has allowed us to, to work together with so many great people. And so I can honestly say one of my greatest joys in my life is that my children love Jesus. They love each other. And they love me and their mom, and they love our church. And that's a big thing. And you mentioned your story goes way back. How long have you and Kristen been married now? Yeah, so we'll, we've been married uh, 29 years this year. Okay, and you're from Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah, both of us. Both of both of you. You grew up at uh, First Baptist Jacksonville, which which was and is a, a leading church. Yep. So so Kristen actually grew up there. She was saved there, baptized there, baptized there multiple times. And so she was there... <laughs> Cause you know how we used to do it back in the eighties. So right, right, faster state. So, so, so she got baptized, but anyways, that's where she, her dad was saved when she was 10 years old and God radically changed their life, their whole family trajectory. I didn't actually grow up in that church. I went to that church when I was in college and that is where we met. And uh, boy, that church has been so influential. That's where I was called to ministry. That's where I was discipled as a college kid. And, um, you know, that's where we felt love. That's where we got married. So that's, that church has a big influence on us. And you have a sports background. You were a scholarship, I believe, to play football at West Point before a cancer diagnosis preempted that. But say a bit about just your sports background and your dad and kind of what that's meant to you. Uh, my, my dad's a high school football coach. So he was a high school football coach in the public schools in the state of Florida and some in Georgia for 40 years. And uh, he was a very successful coach, but my dad's a strong believer in Christ. And so my dad used his platform as a coach and he's won literally hundreds of his players to Christ over the years. And many of them are in their fifties and sixties now. And sometimes I'll be preaching on a Sunday morning and somebody will come up to me after church and be somebody a little bit older than me. And they'll say, Hey, Jimmy Scroggins, there's no way you're related to coach Scroggins. He used to coach at, you know, whatever high school. So yes, yeah, my dad. And they'll say, man, he made such an impact. I mean, he led me to Christ when I was in the 10th grade. I mean, they, it's amazing the stories that that they tell. So I did play sports growing up. I wasn't all that great. I did get to, a chance to go play football at uh, the United States Military Academy at West Point. Didn't ever actually get to play because after I got there, I was there a few weeks. They found out I had cancer and then I had to deal with that. Wasn't able to stay. But it all worked out because that's... I ended up going back to Jacksonville. I met Kristen. I was called to ministry. So, you know, God has a way of... Um, Ordering our steps, doesn't he? And as you look back on your life, I'm curious as far as your leadership, your drivenness, your commitment to gospel ministry, uh, how has sports or how did sports shape you in these in this regard? Oh, man, probably the same way it has you, because I think, you know, both of us, when when you when you get on a team with other men and you have to sweat and bleed and fight, win and lose, stuff happens to you that's not fair. Uh, all kinds of things that you get taught 
by being involved in athletics. But I really think outside of athletics and the military, I don't think there's any other institutions that are teaching young men these kinds of lessons anymore. And I think it's a real shame that a lot of, in a lot of places, athletics and military service are actually being devalued. And I think that's a shame because some of the things you can learn about toughness, teamwork, togetherness, I think it's hard to find it in other arenas. And I'm grateful for that background. And so you mentioned your call to ministry took place after West Point in Jacksonville. Say a word about that. So uh, I was, I was, um, when I was in college, I was a Christian. So I showed up in my church and I went and I said, Hey, um, I'm 19 years old. I'm a sophomore at Jacksonville University. Is there anything I can do to volunteer? They said, well, maybe you can work with middle school kids. So I met with a middle school pastor. His name's Bob Martin. And Bob said, yeah, well, you know, he basically put me to work. And so uh, they eventually put me in charge of teaching the Bible to sixth grade boys. And I remember I wasn't very good at it. No one ever taught me how to teach the Bible. They just kind of gave me a workbook and said, knock yourself out. And boy, that was some really bad teaching that was going on. But, you know, when you just try, it's amazing how God uses his word anyway in our own, you know, bumbling and stumbling around. And I saw uh, kids saved. Uh, we saw some of their families start coming to our church. That little class grew a little bit. And uh, by the time I was, I'd been there doing it a couple of years, they gave me some more responsibility. I was discipled. And so I finally went and met with Jerry Vines was our pastor at the time. And I met with Dr. Vines and I said, Dr. Vines, I don't know how to say this because I hear people tell all these stories about dreams and they had visions and this and that happened. But like, I don't have any of that. I just want to do it. Is there any way I could just be a pastor if I just want to? And he said, uh, he's a really wise pastor. He took his Bible out on his desk and he opened it up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He pushed it across. I want you to read that right there. And it says, if any man desires the work of an overseer, it's a good work he desires to do. And he said, does this describe you? I said, yeah. He said, does you need to go to seminary? Where do you want to go? And I said, well, maybe like I've heard of like Dallas City. No, I said Dallas. I, did, I didn't even know that that existed. I didn't know anything. I didn't have any Baptist background. I was like, well, uh, I've heard of Dallas Seminary, and I think there's a Presbyterian Seminary in Orlando. And Dr. Vine said, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. You're going to a Southern Baptist Seminary. And that's what I ended up doing. Well, and we're glad you did. And said so you married Christine, as you mentioned, eight kids along the way. You've been now in, in West Palm Beach area for, for 15 years. And look, that's no small thing. That's a substantial ministry tenure. And uh, I guess before we get into the specifics of that, just give us a sense as to 15 years and kind of may how the place, the ministry, the people, how it looks different 15 years into the role. Well, I mean, obviously, when I went there, I was 36, and now I'm 52. So I'm a lot different. Uh, my family looks, when I went there, I went with a bunch of little kids, and one of our kids wasn't even born yet, and now we have adults. And so, you know, Chris and I are totally different people. Our family's completely different than we were when we went. But the world's changed a lot, too. The world has completely changed. Social media has really transformed everything, especially how you work with young people and young adults. Um, it's changed, you know, COVID's changed everything. The economy is different. The politics have got, they're just a lot different today than they were in 2008. And so all of these things have just made the ministry, um, I think more challenging in some ways, but more exciting in some ways. And so I think the, the one thing I do like is if you've been somewhere 15 years, um, 
you do get to own all of the problems. You can't blame anything else on your predecessor, but you also get the depth of relate. That's a lot of hospital visits. That's a lot of funerals. That's a lot of weddings. That's a lot of conversations in the office. That's a lot of barbecues in the backyard. That there is a lot. There's a lot of water under the bridge here with a lot of people. And you can just feel the force of that the longer you stay. Kind of like what you experience here. So, Jimmy, each minister, each ministry, they're always distinctives, right? You show me a pastor who is, you know, man of the word over time. That church will become increasingly given to the word. A pastor who's, you know, who's, who, who's given to prayer over time. The church will become given to prayer. Uh, when I think of you, I think of, ever since I've known you, it's just been a real, a real passion for evangelism. And there's more to you than that, of course. But I know that evangelistic zeal has really shown up on the ground in South Florida and through the planning of churches and some things y'all have done to reach so many different uh, ethnic communities. So say a word about just the cosmopolitan nature of South Florida, the diversity of South Florida, what that looks like in the year 2023. And then after framing that for us, talk a little bit about, about what y'all are seeing take place from a ministry standpoint in that midst. I, th- I think, you know, uh, every, every metropolitan area is diverse. Okay, all, all of them. If you go to Birmingham, Alabama, if you go to Chattanooga, Tennessee, certainly Kansas City, but one of the things that's different about South Florida from anywhere else that I've ever lived is that in South Florida, it is both diverse and highly integrated. So it's diverse and highly, and it's not the church that's diverse and highly integrated. The whole area is diverse and highly integrated. And so there's not this ghettoization of any particular ethnic groups. It's, it's highly integrated. And so uh, that changes the dynamic. And so if you have a church, which we have had a church like this where, I, where I'm the pastor, and your church looks a lot less diverse than Publix, it's almost like you must be communicating something different than what Publix is a great store, by the way, if you don't know it. Hey, I'm an evangelist for Publix. It okay, is, have that here? No, but we want it here. Uh, yeah, we're sure. We're demanding it come here. Okay. So, 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 so it's, um, you know, if your church is not as diverse as the community that you're serving, and it's not as integrated as the community that you're serving, that's because you're sending a message. That's different than what everyone else in the community is sending. So one of the things we've had to do is change our posture towards people and make sure that everyone knows that they are invited, welcome and wanted. And there's some things you have to do to make that happen. But but um, our church is highly diverse and highly integrated. And um, look, if you want to actually. If, if you see yourself as a pastor, as the lead missionary to your neighborhood, oh. and I think you should, then you're going to have to come up with a mission-oriented strategy to reach every person in every family in every neighborhood that you serve. And if you're not doing that, what, are you, what kind of a missionary are you? Now, we're never going to be successful at that. We're never going to actually, I mean, it's kind of an aspirational ideal, but it's an ideal worth pursuing. And I think that our church has bought into that to a large degree. I remember the first time, the first time thing we did, we went up, uh, the first time I made, we, we hired a guy named Christian Ramos, who's, he's like six foot seven. He's Puerto Rican and uh, he's an extremely talented musician, but we made him our worship pastor. And that was the first non-Anglo staff member that the church had ever had in its hundred and whatever year history. And so I remember some deacons got me aside and they said, Hey, man, we like you. You preach the gospel, but you are making this church too Mexican. And I said, well, 
you know Chris is Puerto Rican. <laughs> and they said, yeah, but this is a church for Americans. And I said, and you know Puerto Ricans are Americans. <laughs> so just so we're clear. But, but the problem was that there was a certain group of people who had grown accustomed. They had left the Bible Belt or somewhere else, and they had retired to South Florida. And they really didn't want their church to look like their community. Their church was their refuge from the community. And so we had to change it. And it wasn't always easy. And some people like Christian Ramos paid the price for that, but he did it. So give us a sense, just in approximation, give us a sense of, you know, where you are in West Palm Beach. A lot of people hear that and they don't hear the word West. They hear Palm Beach and they think affluence and, you know, everyone in your church is high net worth. And uh, there there is obviously affluence in South Florida, but there's also a lot of poverty and everything in between. Give us a sense as to the basic demographic profile, let's say within a 30 mile radius of your church and um, and then kind of a basic just profile of your church these days. Yeah. So uh, for First of all, we're a family of neighborhood churches. We have 15 different uh, congregations that meet across three counties and four languages in South Florida. I know some of you are like, I don't like multi-site. Okay, don't come to our church. So we have, we have, uh, you know, <laughs> go to a church that doesn't do it. So we have, uh, but we have all these churches. And so they're different because some of them are like, one of them is specifically for uh, Brazil, people who are Brazilian. And so they speak Portuguese. It's all about, it's, it's Brazilian. It's just the way that it is because there are whole, there, there are tens of thousands of Brazilian immigrants and their families that live uh, where we live. Some of them speak Spanish and worship in Spanish because that's the heart language because there are hundreds of thousands of people who, for whom Spanish is their heart language. And so, uh, and then some of our church, you know, we try to say we put a neighborhood church somewhere. We want that church to reflect the neighborhood. And so the building where they meet and the pastor who leads that leads them and their strategy for reaching their neighborhood is going to be contextualized to the people who live in that neighborhood. So it's not like a profile because they're all different. The one where I teach is the original campus uh, downtown, so downtown First Baptist. Um, and in ours, there's a lot of really wealthy people, but there's a lot of really poor people, and they live within blocks of each other. So if you came to our church, you could you could have a, a millionaire or a billionaire sitting next to a person on public assistance, just literally all over the auditorium. And it's a really interesting kind of a dynamic. A lot of the people that come to our church um, don't have a church background, so they don't know a lot of Bible verses and Bible stories. So we have to preach in a way that doesn't require them to mentally cross-reference everything you're saying uh, back to this book and this story and that story, because they, they can't do that. And so um, when you're in this environment, you have to really be intentional about making everybody feel welcome, everybody feel included, but you've got to be intentional about uh, you know, Jerry Vines used to say, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to starve the sheep to feed the goats. And so you want to make sure that you're going after people who don't have a Bible background while you're discipling the people who are. So our strategy for that is we call it family dinner. So like we believe that our church services are for the family. That's when our family gets together and we open up God's word and we eat together. But kind of like your house, probably in my house, uh, when my kids were all teenagers, we would have, you know, the 10 of us around the table and probably three or four others, somebody's teammates, somebody from the neighborhood, somebody from school. 
And we knew that they were going to be there. We were prepared for them to be there. We wanted them to be there because we want to have influence over them. The meal is not for them. We're going to have it for the family, whether they show up or not. But because they're here, we are going to explain to them what we're doing and carefully. And we're going to make sure that they feel welcome and wanted, but we're not actually going to do anything different. We're just going to talk about it a little differently because we want to make sure the guests can understand what's happening. That's how we see our church. You mentioned discipleship. I know as well you have a heart uh, just to mentor young men. Give us a sense as to what the church is doing, and then especially not just what you're doing by way of Bible study or whatever, but what you see taking place generationally, like, like for healthy men leading healthy families in the context of a healthy church. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that upstairs in just a few minutes, a little bit more. But the bottom line is, um, the bottom line is that in this environment that we're living in and in the culture, the way that it's going, if we don't raise up boys and make them believe they can be godly men, and we don't teach the men in our church to fight for their marriages and for their families and to pass the gospel and the good news and the truth of the Bible on to the next generation, then we're not going to have a future. Churches that do that will have a future. Churches that don't won't have much left. So give us a sense, Jimmy, about, uh, about the role of family devotion, family worship has played the life of your family over the decades. Yeah. So probably, you know, we're probably not as, um, probably not as, Probably not operating at as detailed of a level as some people do when they plan out all of their devotions. Uh, what we try to do is whenever we get together, of course, we prioritize family meals. So even when our kids are all playing sports, we probably are going to have family dinner four or five nights a week. We might have to have it at 930. So you might have to have a snack at five because we're not having dinner till everybody gets home, but we're going to have it. And then when we have it, we're going to do some Deuteronomy 6 stuff. We're going to talk about some things that just come up as we're walking along the way. We're going to have some intentional conversations because things come up in the news, things that they're reading, things that they're experiencing in school, things that we observe as a family, things that happen in our church. And we're going to open God's Word, and we're going to read a few verses. We don't; It's not really detailed, but we read a few verses of Scripture and then say, what do you guys think about that? And then we interact with it. And that always leads to an extended conversation about all kinds of things. And to me, it's all about creating the environment where you can have good conversations. Because good Christian parenting requires good Christian-oriented conversations. And as parents, we've got to be equipped and prepared to have those when the kids are ready to have them. And uh, they don't always have them when I want them to. And it's not always the conversation that I intended to have when we sat down. But okay, if that's what we're going to have, let's have that. Because you have to do some Deuteronomy 6, you know, sort of flexibility. So give us a sense as to uh, at year 15. So let's say if God gives you another 15 years there, you're, you're at the midpoint of, of a 30-year pastorate. As you look over your, soul, your shoulder, what do you see that influences, perhaps shapes your view forward as to what's in the future for the church that you're, you're aspiring to realize? I'm sorry, can you clarify that question? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm saying if, if God gives you a 30-year pastorate, you're there 15 years, you're, you're halfway. The church is different 15 years in. Your leadership is different, different 15 years. You're different 15 years in. As you look forward to the next perhaps 15 years, what have you learned of the past that shapes how you undertake your leadership in the future? 
Well, I, th I think if you're going to lead any institution, you have to be thinking about your successors at all times. Anybody who's led anything has inherited some things, some things that you like, some things that you don't like. Sometimes the ones who went before you with all the best intentions in the world did some things that you wish they would have done differently. Sometimes you're very grateful for the decisions that they made. It's usually a mixed bag. I'm sure that the ones who come after me will feel the same way. They'll, they'll, they'll show up and go, man, what in the world was Scroggins thinking? This is ridiculous. And other times they'll go, man, I'm so glad he did that. That really helped me. But I think just thinking about the future, which means if you're going to be a pastor and you're going to have a 30-year pastorate or more, you have to be thinking about who's next. Why would you labor all of this time and not have any say or any hand in raising up, if not, if not naming your successor, at least raising up people who are obvious candidates to be your successor so that when you go, the church doesn't have to bring somebody in unless they just want to, who doesn't have any connection with any of this, hasn't been in the conversation, doesn't understand why these decisions were made, doesn't understand the strategy that we've been pursuing. And so one of the things that I want to do is just intentionally create a, an army of men that would be potential successors. And so to me, just thinking about that and then not binding your, you know, do as much as you can not to bind your church up with facilities and debt and financial commitments that are going to outlast you. Because the next iteration of the church, the next set of demands that the culture is going to place on the church to be good missionaries to that culture, they can completely change. And if you lock the church in financially or facilities-wise or otherwise, it's going to make it so they're not agile enough to respond in the best way. So I think creating successors and maintaining a posture of agility for your church moving forward, is those are things that I would be thinking about. So final question on a lighter note, uh, you were early in your pastorate when your church made the Drudge Report, and it had to do with a runaway camel during your Christmas cantata. And you made like global news over that, Dr. Scroggins. Can you unpack for us what happened and the trauma that inflicted on you and your church? And you know, I still believe in Christmas cantatas. You know, Dr. Allen, I do not believe in Christmas cantatas. I've sworn off of those. I don't believe in bringing camels into the building. I think that was a big mistake. And, uh, you know, even that terrible... So, so what happened? We had a big Christmas pageant that I inherited that I wanted to stop doing. And this helped me, actually. <laughs> Because the camel, if you've never seen the video, just Google Christmas camel falls into the audience and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. The camel goes down the aisle and in the middle of going down the aisle with the three kings from the Orient, he, he, he tips over and falls into the audience like a drunk camel. And then his, his legs just start doing like this while he's hung up on the pews and he can't get up. And... Yeah, it wasn't good. We were on every news channel, every news station, and uh, but it did allow us to stop doing the Christmas pageant. God works all things together for good. He works all things together for good. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.